you by naturopathicearth.com. Here is certified health coach A. Gregory Luna with Confessions of an Obese Child. Hello, everybody. This is A. Gregory Luna. Of course, you can call me Gregory. And welcome back to another episode of Confessions of an Obese Child. I hope you've been doing well these last six weeks since the last episode. Before we begin interviewing Miss Deborah, I have a couple of announcements. Confessions of an Obese Child, as I've mentioned over in NPE Radio, is now available on ebook. If any of you have a Kindle or a Nook through Barnes and Noble, by all means, go and download the book, the ebook. It's only two dollars and ninety nine cents, and of course, all that money goes to defraying the cost of the podcast and the website. If you do buy. Confessions of an Obese Child, please post a review because the reviews help with the rankings. So I'd appreciate if you could do that. As always, please listen to our main flagship podcast, MP Radio and Cold Health News. We've released some really awesome episodes as of late. We've talked about the porn problem and in England where 50% of men in their 30s have erectile dysfunction due to porn. We've talked about recently the 50 birth defect-causing chemicals found in pregnant women. We have the episodes on natural treatments for cancer. So go check out those episodes. I know most of you that listen to the Confessions feed also listen to the MPE feed, but just as a reminder. Also, of course, I am a paleo-inspired health coach. If any of you want to lose some weight and you need some help, so you want a guru to help you out, please contact me through the website. And of course, we have the crowdfunding account through Patreon. If any of you want to donate as little as a dollar a month to help defray the cost of the podcast and website, um, please follow the links that are on this on the episode notes of this episode or go to the homepage, Naturopathic Earth. Click on the link and you can donate money. That would help us quite a bit. All right, let's get to our interview with Deborah because we have a lot to talk about. Okay, we are here with Deborah. Deborah, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Thanks for having me. Oh, you! I, it is my honor. I love interviewing people. So you are doing me a favor by coming here today. So let's start at the beginning because these interviews tend to go pretty long because I like to do your whole life story. Where were you born? I was born in Nuremberg, Germany. Oh, military. Yes. All right, yes. Nuremberg. Most famous because of the Nazi trials. Of course. <laughs> Oh, and my birth, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so how many siblings do you have? I have, um, there were seven of us, come from a large military family. I am the youngest girl. I have one younger brother whose name is Mark. He's my heart. Oh, um, that rhymes. That's clever. You probably told him that as a kid all the time. <laughs> so you were number five? Six. Number six. Number six. Okay, number six. Great. And then when did you move back to the States or where, what city did you grow up in? I grew up in Radcliffe, Kentucky. Um, right next to Fort Knox. And so we moved back there. I went to kindergarten on Fort Knox and first grade through 12th grade in Radcliffe. So small town? Small town. Small, dry county. Mm. Um, like Footloose. Yeah, kind of like that. <laughs> the, 80s, the 80s movie version is much better than the one they did recently. Definitely. Yeah. All right. So 
when did you start gaining weight or what age did you notice that you were gaining weight or somebody told you that? So I was always the plump child. Um, I really didn't think anything about it. I didn't feel any less loved or pointed out. The first time I realized there was something different, I was in a doctor's office. I was 10 years old at Ireland Army Hospital with my mother, and the doctor used the word obese. Mm -hmm. And I did not know what the word meant. Mm. Um, So I came home and looked it up in the dictionary and was just devastated and shattered. So this is at age 10. Age 10. So prior to age 10, did kids kids never called you fat or never say anything? Or did your, did your parents ever insinuate, oh, Deborah, don't eat those you know, Twinkies or anything like that? Do you remember any of those memories? No, I really didn't have those type of memories. We were a family that embraced food. I think it's part of um, definitely the African-American culture. Um, and the Southern, my parents were from Mississippi, the Southern culture. Um, we use food to celebrate. We use food when we didn't feel well. I mean, I remember very vividly when we were sick, my dad going and getting our favorite food to make us feel sure, better, right. those types of things. So, Yeah, I even did that recently with my kids. They all went to the dentist for the first time. And it's just natural to say, okay, if you behave well, or we'll go to I get ice cream, or, oh, you're sick, you know. Yeah. Definitely, definitely used food as um, comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were age 10. I, I remember going to the doctor. I was much older, but I remember like looking at his chart when he wasn't in the room and he wrote down that I was morbidly obese. And I still remember that. I didn't know what the word morbid meant, but uh, by that point I knew I was really overweight. But okay, so you were 10. You looked it up. And I just thought I was devastated. I mean, I, yeah. I just like, oh gosh, I'm obese. And and from, I think from somewhere in that point on, I have never seen myself any differently um, than obese. It became an identity for me. Mm-hmm. And so there was no answer to what you were supposed to do about that. I knew it was a bad thing. I knew it was something that other people weren't um, mm-hmm. and that other people weren't dealing with. And I think at that point, I probably even gained more weight because... It was just over in somewhere in my ten-year-old head. Yeah, so there's, there was like maybe a cycle where, like, I know, I know for me that as soon as the kids started calling me Fat Albert when I was maybe six, it just fueled me to eat more because there was self-loathing involved. And even though when I got older, I realized, well, this really isn't going to help me lose weight that I'm binge eating more. But it's that cycle of the self-loathing that reinforces the the binge eating. And uh, yeah, it's hard to get away from it. So when you you turned, you, you were 10, they told you uh, you were overweight. Um, I, how, do you have any idea how old, how much, how much you weighed at that point? Do you have like a vague number? No, I do number? not know what I weighed at that point. I have no idea. Um, I just remember from that point on feeling different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, the next memories I have concerning weight was having to go to Sears to get Pretty Plus clothing. Yeah, yeah. In the Pretty Plus department, there were only like three or four options, and everyone that was a fat child wore the same clothes (laughs) because they were the only Not a lot of fashion sense there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So how old were you when you started going to that that department? Were you high school? No, and Pretty Plus was 11, 12, you know, size 11, 12 plus 
Um, so yeah, I was probably 11, 12, 13 years old. I remember when Fashion Bug opened Fashion Bug Plus, um, where you could actually buy fashionable clothes for fat people. Mm. Um, I distinctly remember the first pair of jeans that I bought were these off-white jeans with multicolor pinstripes with the mm. pleats in them um, that were in a plus size from Fashion Bug Plus and... You know, that's what you wore every Friday night when you went to the arcade. The arcade, yeah. You're talking in retro <laughs> 80s. The kids, the millennials, like, what's an arcade? Yeah, Merlin's Castle. Shout out to Radcliffe, Kentucky. <laughs> Merlin's Castle. I think we had Merlin's Castle down here, too. Yeah, did it have, like, miniature golf and arcade games? And it had all the arcade games. Yeah. It had the Pac-Man and all yeah. the, yeah. yeah. We hung out between that, and there was another one at the other side of town, and we drove back and forth between the two and stopped at McDonald's. Of course. That was our Friday nights. So I'm just curious. So you were already going to big and tall stores at 11 or 12, but no one was picking on you or making fun of you prior to 10. It, why do you think that is? Because typically, like, we're both creatures of the same generation. And I don't, I don't think I went to like a school that had more sadists than other schools. That, but I mean, the kids were, were calling me names, saying earthquake every time I walked. And, you know, they'd steal my shorts in, in, lock, in, the, in the locker room and just a bunch of stuff that I've talked about on this podcast. But for you, so nobody was calling you names that you recall. I didn't get a lot of name calling. I think that we grew up in, I think because we were in the military for us, I think that we were used to seeing people that were different than us. Um, and so I didn't get a lot of that. When I got further on into, up going into high school, I got the Little Debbie because my name was Debbie and the Little Debbie snack cakes were popular. So it was kind of the play on words. She must be eating a lot of Little Debbies because she's a big girl. Um, but but in middle school. But in middle school, not a no. lot of name calling. Um, did going back to to when you were quote unquote diagnosed with being obese? Did your parents try to put you on diets? Do you remember any official like Weight Watchers diets they put you on? Do you remember them saying, or at the least, you know, you're you're overweight. We need to watch what you eat. I had a sister that would try to kind of monitor that and, you know, would say, you know, maybe you shouldn't eat that um, or, you know, you've, you've had enough. or So a little bit of that, um, but not really, not a lot of... I, re, I did go to Weight Watchers as a, a teenager at probably age 16. I started a Weight Watchers, which was pure hell back then because it was baked fish and lettuce... <laughs> basically, and um, you know, no one else was doing that. No one our age was doing that, and it wasn't something that traveled well. No, no, um, I, I imagine microwaves weren't popular, so it wasn't like you could take it to school and pop it in the microwave. And yeah, so so your your sister would try to tell you in an indirect way, you know, you should eat better. But your, your siblings never fed, and they never made fun of you. They didn't no. call you fat or anything no, like that. I just we just didn't get that, and I don't think it was allowed. We were just loved in our family. I mean, I didn't have that trauma of you know my parents saying don't eat that or you know my siblings calling me fat or even the friends that we hung out with um, calling me fat or teasing like that. And you were the only one of the siblings that was overweight. Yes. Okay. Hmm. Well, I know, like, from my experience, my, my brothers didn't make fun of me, uh, and I did go to a dietitian, and my parents would send me all the time, but I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to give up the binge eating. I, 
I loved the binge eating more than I loved myself. And it wasn't until I hit 18 when I actually lost my weight that I guess something triggered. Maybe it was the realization that I was never going to get laid if I stayed morbidly overweight, morbidly overweight. But I don't know. Something happened. But starting at around age 10 or 11, my 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 parents were like, "Me, oh, you 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 need you need to go to Weight Watchers. We have to take you to a dietitian." And I mean, I I, I kept secretly binge eating. I mentioned in previous episodes, like I would order two large pizzas through Domino's when my parents were gone for the day and I would eat them all up and then hide the pizza cartons behind the refrigerator. You know, a lot of that, that secretive eating, uh, because I, I knew I shouldn't do it, but I loved the release, I guess, of binge eating. And a lot of that continued into my twenties and thirties, which I talk about on the podcast. But do you remember any like secretive eating when you were, let's say, middle school, high school, or was it just eating with your family? Um, I don't remember secretly eating or, or even just binge eating. I think I just ate a lot when I ate, and I didn't feel like I had that cap. I was never full. I. You know, and I, I would say I, I have something missing. People have that where they get full yeah. and they're satisfied. Right. And there was never a satisfaction um, with being full. I could have Thanksgiving dinner, do the bathroom release, and go back and continue to eat again. Oh, and, wait, what do you mean the, the bathroom release? Are we talking about vomiting? No, no, no. no. Okay. <laughs> because, because we could talk about that if, if you had that experience. No, I, I, I was not a... Um, you know, bulimic. bulimic. Yeah. Um, I just ate a lot and I gained weight. And somewhere along the line, I didn't do enough exercise, didn't burn enough calories. And do you think your siblings were eating as much as you, but for some reason, metabolically, you weren't breaking down the food as quickly? Or do you think you were actually eating more than your other siblings? Um, I think. It started out probably we were probably eating the same. We didn't have you know an over with seven children this overabundance of food, so there wasn't like there was all this food that you could just go snack on and eat. I think it started out where I wasn't breaking down the food. When you got older and you were able to go buy food yourself or you had a little bit of money, then I think the choices I made were a big part of that. Sure, like when when you were an adult, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's move on to high school. Um, any bullying in high school that you remember, aside from being called Little Debbie? Um, and see, I don't know that we called it bullying. I think that people talked about, you know, your weight um, or that you were bigger. Um, but I, I didn't, I don't remember or recall feeling like I was being bullied or intimidated by that. I was just me. Um, I think I had a sense of confidence in myself that didn't allow me to be phased by it? I think I was probably phased by it. I didn't let the phasing show. How's okay. that? So, um, but you were never like the, the, the popular girls weren't like, oh, Debbie, you're so fat, blah, 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 blah. No, blah. I think they were afraid to say that. They were, I, was, <laughs> I was probably the bully in high school, if anything else. Because <laughs> you were masking the pain, you right? Know, That's what they were saying. Like, yeah, Bullies. So, um, well, more, probably more in elementary school. But no, I think that um, I was, appeared at least confident in myself. I was, you know, intelligent. Um, I had fairly decent grades. I 
you know, had a good set of friends. Um, so I don't remember being bullied. I remember distinctly not being the most popular in terms of dates and boys and, and, right. and those types of things. Um, I wasn't the um, Karen or Barbara shout out. They're both beautiful. <laughs> but, you know, I wasn't Karen or Barbara who were, um, you know, slender and um, long, pretty hair and, and light-complected. Um, I was not those girls. I had um, a lot of male friends. Mm -hmm. um, so I was kind of everyone's sister. Yeah. Friend-zoned, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Very clear delineation of friend-zoned. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I was going to ask you, so, so going back to high school, did... Um, so you had mentioned how starting around the age of 10, you just identified with being overweight the whole time. So even, so when you were in high school, you, were, you ostensibly came off very confident and comfortable with who you were, but would you say deep down you, you felt bad or you had self-loathing because you thought, oh, I'm a fat piece of, you know what? Did that go through your head at all? Or were you very comfortable with your body and your figure? I mean, oh, no, definitely not comfortable with my body or figure. I also had the blessing of filling out um, bust-wise uh -huh. very robustly. Yeah. And so then I think I had a lot more, um, if you they would call it bullying now, related to um, oversized breast yeah. than anything else. And so no one ever looked you in your eyes. They always looked you in your boobs. Um and so I think that was, you know, I probably had more discomfort with that. I had people who would, you know, say those aren't real or. Um, <laughs> so this is like 13 years old or older? Uh, between or 13 and 15, yeah. I blossomed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they were literally people would be telling you those are not your real breasts. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Like, like you've had implants already at 14. Yeah. Or like, yeah, <laughs> like I was stuffing my bra, you know, the Kleenex, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, went through that. Um but did you did so you, you did have some self-loathing at that point and you think that was reinforcing the uh, the eating cuz cuz you you had mentioned like you couldn't stop eating or you didn't you would you wouldn't get full or you would feel full but you would continue to eat or you just never felt no, full No I didn't really get the full feeling until I was like after Thanksgiving dinner full then that's when I would feel like I was full but just to go and eat a regular meal you know I mean a hamburger a fry and a milkshake and most people would be full or satisfied. Right. I did not have that. So you kept eating. So I would keep eating. But did part of you know, like, I should just stop eating after the hamburger fries and, and the milkshake because you knew, like, well, I'm overweight. Or, you know, maybe there's something wrong with my, my hunger cues and I should just stop there. Or did you just think I should just eat and eat and eat because this is the way I was raised, just eat a lot of food? and. No, I think I knew that I should be doing something differently. Um and in terms of self-loathing, I think that's always been very difficult for me um, to even embrace the fact that I've had those feelings about myself, mm -hmm. if that makes sense at all, um, to actually even now to admit that there were self-confidence issues or that there were um, issues related to not liking myself and therefore that may have made me eat more. It's very difficult, even now to this day. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there was a time that 
I knew I should have stopped eating, but eating gave me comfort, so I continued to do it. Would eating give you comfort for a little while because the way it tasted, but then you knew after a little while it made you feel worse because you just, you're just digging yourself deeper into a hole, or did you not make that connection? I don't think I made that connection. I don't think I allowed myself to make that connection. Um, I know that I would eat, and I would feel bad at times because I ate too much or physically, and then emotionally I knew you know, you know when you're doing things that aren't good for you. Mm. But sometimes you don't regulate those things. Um, I don't know. I, and I guess it goes to self-worth, which is something that I could, would tell people, you know, I, I have a great self-esteem. And, um, but when you look back at what you've done to yourself year after year after year, you have to at some point realize that if you had great self-esteem, you would not continue to allow yourself to do those things to yourself. Yeah, like I the previous episode of this was was uh, I talked about the body positive movement or like fat glorification mm-hmm. that we see in Hollywood where you have plus size actresses saying, you know, this is who I am. I love my body. And I kind of call I call out that movement because being overweight shortens your life expectancy. It gives you a higher rate of cancer and, and diabetes and all these things that lower your life expectancy. So why are we trying to push a lifestyle that would shorten your life expectancy? But at the same time, you see why these actresses you know, do that. And they say, oh, I'm proud of my body because, uh, well, I think on one level, you know, we don't have a lot of plus size, uh, I guess, Hollywood role models. So they, they fit that bill. But the other thing is you see a lot of these actresses, they'll eventually try to lose weight. So let's say Adele, Lena Dunham from Girls. Then they'll be interviewed and say, oh, I was in a bad place, and now I feel much better. So it's like the hypocrisy of the body-positive, uh, fat-glorifying situation, because they'll be like, oh, I'm happy who I am, and I, I love being fat, and then they'll come out later after they've lost the weight and say, oh, I, I was in a bad place, now I'm much happier. And I think that's a really difficult thing, because at some point, in order to get to the place where you do better for yourself, you've got to love yourself where you are. You've got to at least embrace where you are, acknowledge where you are in order to move to another place. So my highest weight was 398. Okay, so this was later on in your 20s or 30s? or um, My highest weight was at, really after my divorce um, and about six years ago, and I was 398 pounds. And I woke up one morning and said, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, um, I have to love myself enough to make a change, to do something differently. The body positive image, um, I think that there's, shame has never produced anything worth it. Mm -hmm. So someone can shame you and shame you and shame you. And in talking with people that I've known that have been overweight, the bullying and the shame typically isn't what gets them to change. Mm -hmm. It is deciding that they want better for themselves. So it's deciding on loving yourself um, and being there and showing up for yourself somehow. And even just in that one little instance, when I finally picked up the phone and called the doctor and said, that's it, I want to have surgery, I want to do this, I have to do it, and this needs to move very quickly before I slip back into that place where I don't want to move. We need to move it along. It needs to happen very quickly or else I'm going to change my mind and be okay with just being 398 pounds. Oh, I understand your point. I 
like when I lost my weight, I had a, a PE coach tell me, he was just straight out. He said, Albert, you're going to die. You're going to die young. You know, he was very hard with me. And I think all the other PE coaches, they, uh, they'd be like, oh, you don't, you don't have to run the, the four laps everyone else did. They were like enabling it. And my parents would enable it to a certain extent. So sometimes you just, you need that wake up call. And for me, it was when I was 18 where I thought, I'm never going to, I'm never going to have sex, much less even kiss a girl. Mm-hmm. Do I want that life, you know, and and part of me still wanted to eat a lot, but I was able to curb my eating just because I think that was my goal. So you're right. I think we all have like like an epiphany that happens and that window can be short lived. I mean, I have mentioned that I think if I had not lost my weight when I was 18 in that window where I had that PE coach who really pushed me and I started losing four or five pounds and that gave me kind of confidence, I don't think I would have lost it. I think I would have ended up being a 600-pound dude that you see those TV shows on and and die young. So your window came after the divorce. Okay, so let's talk about your adulthood in a second. But any closing thoughts about uh, your high school experience, uh, growing up? So, Like in my case, I had a, a kind of a, an alcoholic father who was... Um, and a very like aloof, depressed mom. And I think because when I was a young kid, I wasn't getting any nurturing. I turned to food for comfort and nurturing, but you didn't have any kind of that dysfunction. You just think that it was ingrained kind of in your family, just to eat a lot of food. And just for whatever reason you ate and you gained a lot of weight. Yeah, I would say that that was right. I mean, I'm, I had some, I think incidents that, um, as I came up through my teenage years, you say as a male, you thought, well, if I didn't lose weight, I would never have sex. Well, men are a little different. They'll sleep with anyone. So <laughs> even, even slump busters is the old so quote. Even right? the fat girl got sex. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but not the fat guy. <laughs> and so I think that um, at a young age, I sought out attention in different ways. Um, so sex became um, an area where that it was at least attention and mm. contact and I probably started too young mm. and made some very poor choices. Um, this is high school time. This is in high school time. Okay, so you think you were trying to get attention and you thought, okay, one of the ways I can get attention from men or from boys or whatever is is through being sexually active. So this oh, definitely gives you some I mean, self-approval. Boobs, so, you know, yeah. they were interested in seeing the boobs. Yeah. So um, I think that that was a way when, when that happened that I could um, garner some attention that other people were getting that I felt like I was missing. And um, so then in high school, you were getting sexual action. Like for me, I didn't, I don't think I went to an all boys school, so I didn't even talk to girls until I think my sophomore year, but I didn't get any action at all until after I lost my way. But you were, you were getting some action in high school. I got a, yeah, so, I got so a little that's bit good. of action. Now, would any of these guys commit? Did you have boyfriends in high school, or were they like, oh, I'll just you know mess around with you know little Debbie and then dump you? Um, no, I had a couple of of serious relationships. They probably shouldn't have been as serious as they were at the time. Um, two in particular that um, one was uh, should not have been. Um, a relationship probably at all for, from the beginning. And it lasted a very long time. It was one of those things that you kind of never let go of. Um, and, I mean, until even into college, um, you know, did we have, you know, relationships off and on. Mm-hmm. And rest his soul now, um, 
when he passed away, we were actually very good friends. Um, you know, so that was um, the one. And the other relationship was just a young love. Um, it was just that young love that was innocent as it could be. And it was um, someone that I cared very deeply about. So. Well, that was good. So you did have some positive experiences in, in, in high school with the opposite sex. And you were in relationships and you were in love. And Oh, yeah. That's definitely. good. See, that's good. See, that we, so we had, we had different experiences in that regard. All right. So let's take a break. And then we're going to talk about Deborah's adulthood experiences. Okay, so now we're back. So we're going to fast forward into Deborah's adulthood. So what are your what are your memories of your your twenties and thirties? So in my twenties, of course, I did the college scene. Um, remember really feeling fat and overweight at that time. Um, did you know throughout the course of twenties and thirties? Did every diet you could think of? Did the all liquid diet, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, the, um, did you do the cookie diet? I don't know how people no. think the cookie diet's effective. No, but I did the, I did Weight Watchers again, which was yeah. a little bit better that time. I did the all liquid diet. I did, um, you know, starvation and just trying to do that. And you would lose weight. Um, Jenny Craig, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you would do, lose weight and it would come back because there was no real lifestyle change. There exactly. was no real dealing with any issues or emotional um, factors that had played into it. And I think that when I decided to have the weight loss surgery, I decided to do it all. I did, going back to, to Weight Watchers, I did an MPE radio episode, maybe 10 episodes back, where I talk about the Weight Watchers scam and how even the, the COOs on record is saying that uh, their goal is for you not to keep your weight off because if you kept your weight off, where are they going to get the reoccurring customers? So they even know in their business model, and they mentioned it, when you guys or when people lose weight via Weight Watchers, you give yourself credit, right? But when you gain it back, you blame yourself for having the lack of self-control and you don't blame Weight Watchers. So it's a perfect kind of business model where they know statistically only about 5% of people who lose more than 50 pounds keep it off. So they know that their, their model might lead to some weight loss, but you're going to gain it back. Because as you mentioned, you have to do like a complete lifestyle shift, and they know most people aren't going to do that. They'll gain their weight back, and then they go back to Weight Watchers. And so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily not recommend Weight Watchers. Would I, I would definitely go listen to that episode, but... Um, as, as Deborah mentioned, it's got to be like a whole lifestyle change. You can limit your carbs or, you know, limit your fast food eating for five, six months to lose the weight. But unless you make wholesale changes, you're just going to go back to eating that way, especially if you have disordered eating. If you don't do the deep work to find out why you're turning to food, um, you're just going to gain it, gain it back. So, so uh, you had some kids? I do I have a 29 year old and I have a 22 year old, both boys, and I have an adopted daughter, Michaela, who is 23. Um, so, did you gain a lot of weight during those two pregnancies, or do you remember? Um, I did. My first pregnancy, I gained probably 50 to 60 pounds. Um, 
And, you know, of course then, yeah, I mean, I can remember I was in college. I was in college at the time, and I remember, you know, the cravings and these foot-long hot dogs from Dairy Queen. and um, Oh, the blizzards were my Dairy Queen. Oh, yeah, so that we... would just eat and eat and eat those. And then you had, of course, a reason to eat because you were eating for two. So, right. then, you know, there wasn't a lot of guilt with that. You could no. kind of get away with that when you were pregnant, um, <laughs> which is, you know, not healthy, of course. But, um, and then, of course, just really didn't lose the weight after mm-hmm. um, the first child. You just kind of kept it on, kept going. And then life gets crazy when, you, when you're a single mother. Um, with a infant and you're finishing college and you have internships and you're trying to start a life. Um, you just try to eat when you can. You're more likely to eat fast food because you're, you're busy and you're stressed. Late at night. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, I, and I did do, I had the, when you say disordered eating, I can remember eating beside, with having food beside my bed at night. Um, mm. You know, waking up at three o'clock in the morning and turning over and eat three Oreos or something like that and, and go back to sleep. Um, you know, and, and knowing that that wasn't what most people did, um, but not really at that point, I don't think caring about it at that point, I was depressed. Um, partly cause you knew you were really overweight. Partly because I knew I was really overweight. I had started out, um, you know, started a new job, uh, you know, had a decent career, was making good money at the time for a single mother. Um, but was very lonely. I had moved to a city where I really didn't know a lot of people, um, didn't have a lot of family support, but I was going to make it on my own. Um, you know, and became very depressed there and gained a lot of weight there. Um, made some choices in relationships that, you know, I wasn't proud of, which probably led me to eat more. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say that now. During that time, I would have not been able to admit that. Oh, yeah. It's amazing how much denial we're in and how much we can rationalize bad behavior when we're in it. And only later on, if you're kind of an introspective person, later on you'll look back and like, what? now I know why I did that or I did this. This was so bad. But if people would have called you on it at the time, you'd be like, no, you're wrong. I'm not eating more because I just got out of a bad relationship. You're wrong. And you get all defensive. But I think one of the, the ways to, to kind of remedy that disordered eating is you have to do a lot of introspection. You have to journal. You got to go to the, if it's the childhood issues like it was for me, you know, you, you have to reach that source. But I've mentioned on this podcast, a lot of my disordered eating when I was an adult was what I would like binge in the car. So I mentioned to Deborah, like in my college years, if you go to the college dysfunction episode, right after I lost my weight, you're, you're paralyzed and petrified about gaining it back. So I would starve for five days out of the of the week and then weigh myself Friday and then binge for two days um, over the weekend. And then I would, you know, rinse, lather, repeat on Monday again and then starve. And I did that probably for 10 years. And then once I started being with my ex-wife, I didn't want her to know about my, my disordered eating. So I just binge eat in the car because I didn't know how to... T- tackle that stuff because I don't I don't know because it's like when even when you lose your weight you still see yourself as a fat person in a skinnier person's body and you think everyone looks at you that way and it's not like you wake up one day and you're like oh I lost my weight so I have normal eating habits <laughs> I didn't have that so I would just binge eat in the car before going home uh, you know three Big Macs two pints of ice cream bag of chips whatever and then I'd go home and try to hide it. Uh, from from my ex-wife and I did that for years too so I mean uh, it, it's tough it's tough you definitely have to do the the deep work to see why you have the disordered eating 
but one of the things that after my surgery, one of the things that I did because I was committed at that point to looking at things differently than I had before, or else I knew that this was going to be another failure. And what I did not want was another failure. And I think the fear of failure and the fear of succeeding are both on the same continuum. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and there's the, there's not a lot of difference between them um, because both of them can be paralyzing. Um, But one of the things that I did was I assigned a number of pounds to different things that I felt like I needed to forgive myself for. Mm -hmm. Um, So that first um, boyfriend that I should have never been in a relationship with, I assigned him 50 pounds. And when those 50 pounds were lost, I'm forgiving myself for that relationship. Wow. That's, that's very innovative. Um, and, and, and then, you know, the other relationship where, you know, I probably had more to do with it, not working than the other person Then I may have sound myself 15 pounds for that. And at the end of those 15 pounds, I'm going to forgive myself for that. Hmm. Um, and because it was a lot of healing that needed to take place, um, for what I had done to myself, not from what other bullies had done to me or, or things like that. It was about choices that I had made, and I had to take responsibility for those things. Um, that's that's really profound. I like that kind of idea, and I and I totally agree. It's like we have to be accountable for what we put in my in, in your mouth. Like I don't like the idea of, of, of and you might not agree with this, but we're like eating eating being uh, a disease. Like we look at alcoholism as a disease, and I don't. I think we're ultimately accountable for what we put in my mouth and, and or put in our mouth. And I had mentioned, I think in episode one, I used to blame my parents. I'd be like, you saw I was five years old and I was binge eating all these chips and you just let me do it. It's your fault that I'm fat. It's your fault that my life got all effed up. I'm only five. What does a five-year-old know about food? And I lived for a lot of my 20s hating my parents. Mm. And again, you know, in retrospect, how does that help? It doesn't help at all, right? But eventually I got to the point where I was like, no, I mean, yeah, early on when you're five, you know any better. But through my adolescence and in my adulthood, I'm still putting the food in my mouth. I'm the one. No one's shoving food down my mouth. Now, I might have disordered eating because of, of my father and mother being the way they are, but we have to take accountability. And, and, I, and I spoke to my dad prior to his death before I knew he was actually going to die. And I told him, you know, I... I'm sorry for blaming you. And I asked for his apology or his forgiveness. And I think it meant a lot to him. And I'm glad because we died. when he died, we were on good terms. But I think ultimately we have to be responsible for what we put in our mouth. And just like, you know, alcoholics have to be responsible, even though there's so many forces pushing us maybe to drink that bottle of vodka. Ultimately, we have to be accountable. Do you, do you agree or? So I agree that we have to be responsible for what we put in our mouth. I do believe that eating disorders um, are difficult because you have to eat something in order to survive and to make those choices when there's so many easy choices out there or so many wrong choices out there every day is very difficult um, if you if you really have an issue with food. Um, And so admitting to having food issues and knowing that you have to look at it, um, every bite that you take, that you need to look at it as, do you need this or do you not need that? I struggle with that every day. Um, It's exhausting. It is exhausting. And it's one of those things, it's like, well, if I could just not eat, 
then, you know, maybe, well, then I would probably choose something else that I would do. Um, I think addictive personalities, you, you're going to find your addiction. You're going to find sure. what that is. Um, for me, it happens to be food. Um, I totally agree. I totally agree with that mentality. Like if you have an addictive personality, if, if let's say you're able to control your food, but you don't do the deep work to figure out why food is an issue, you'll just turn to shopping, sex, gambling, definitely, drinking, definitely. you know, whatever it is. Yeah, I do agree with that regard. Uh, so let's, let's fast forward. So the apex of your weight, you said how much, how much did you? 398. 398. Okay. And that was about five years? Five, six years ago. Okay. So then you finally came to the realization that you had to lose weight. You told your doctor, you know, we got to do it now. So, so what, what kind of surgery did you do to lose weight? I had the the gastric bypass surgery. Gastric bypass. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how, how effective was that? Um, I think it was really effective because you lose quickly at the beginning um, and I needed those successes. I needed that um, immediately to see results and, and weight coming off. Um, but people tend to think that, oh, well, you had a weight loss surgery, so you took the easy way out and you cheated <laughs> or whatever else like that. And that's a bunch of bullshit. Um, weight loss surgery is not the easy way out. It is a very difficult um, process. You change your body. Um, you change the way you metabolize food. So you had the one where they essentially redirected all the food straight from your esophagus into your small intestines where food doesn't go into your stomach at all. Correct. Yeah. So you have to eat very small portions, right? If you get, you get sick. And, and, but you can overeat. You can learn to overeat it. You can really? trick yourself into overeating it. If you are a food addict, you can find a hack for any kind of surgery or anything that you have. Um, I struggle now. I love sweets. Mm. If I eat, I know exactly how many gummy bears I can eat before I get sick. Mm. Um I know how many Oreo cookies I can eat before the sugar effects mm-hmm. are going to um, make me have ill effects. Um, and even knowing that, you know, you would say, well, why would you do that to yourself? Why would you even eat those foods if you know they're going to bother you? It's the addiction portion of it that you have to continuously, continuously deal with on a daily basis. I know now when I start picking up weight, there's something emotionally that when I was really successful, I had dealt with, but it's mm-hmm. come back in. Yeah. And so I have to stop and say, okay, what's going on in my life? What feeling or what am I trying to avoid yeah. dealing with in order that I picked up these 15 pounds back or these 20 pounds back or whatever else it is? And until I take responsibility and sit down and look at what's going on in my life, where I am failing myself... Um, and where I'm not dealing with it emotionally, then I'm going to continue. And I could very easily be back up to 398 plus pounds, even with the weight loss surgery, if I don't take responsibility and continually go back and do the deep work. Yes, exactly. It's so important to be introspective all the time. And it's good that you 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 know that about yourself and that uh, it's always connected to the disordered thinking and the disordered eating. And like I lost my weight. I, I don't, I lost my weight 91 mm-hmm. and I don't know if they had gastric bypass surgery by then. So I lost it the old fashioned way, but it's the same thing. It's always a slippery slope where you can just gain it back really mm-hmm. fast, you know? So, so how much did you lose, um, like total? So my total Initially, because I've gained some, I've gained some weight back now. I have to confess that I have some issues that I need to deal with, that I'm putting on the table. And so, by saying it That's in right. this podcast, put it on the table. <laughs> <laughs> saying it in this podcast is my confession and my promise to myself that I'm going to deal with these issues and get the weight back off. 
So, um, so how much did you lose, like the most at the, the all time most? So I went from three ninety eight. My lowest weight has been two hundred six. Two hundred six. So mm-hmm. one hundred and eighty ninety pounds you lost. Yes. Wow. And how long did it take you to do it? It took me about two and a half years. Two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Okay. And kept that weight off um, probably for about two years, pretty mm-hmm. consistently. And in the last year or so, I've probably gained about thirty pounds back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had some. Um, Issues that I haven't fully dealt with. Um, I, I recently lost a sister um, mm-hmm. in May, and I can tell that that has really changed um, some of my choices, and I haven't been making um, as positive choices as I need to. Um, I've just got to deal with grief. Um, having a change in a relationship status over the last year mm-hmm. um, has kind of sent me in a tailspin. And um, The opposite sex, they ruin us. I know. <laughs> <laughs> which is ridiculous, though, um, and it's it's really my response to it. Um, That's good. So you say that. So it, it's it's about the accountability, yeah. Because you know? it's so easy to blame. Oh, that guy dumped me, or this girl dumped yeah. me, or yeah. no, not at all. And not even just that. It, it's taking not even taking responsibility into what you're putting in your mouth when you feel like crap, but taking responsibility for your portion or your part in whatever that relationship yeah. is, because no mm-hmm. one. Ruins a relationship on their own. That's right. And the relationship doesn't, you know, go no matter what the other party did or what the other person did. There's two sides to it. And so actually being brave enough to take responsibility in that I had a big part to do in this. But um, also you don't want to kick into the self-loathing because I think it, that, that happens too. Or like, oh, it's my fault. The relationship ended. You know, I stepped out on them or I did this or that. Oh, I'm a horrible person. Let's go eat seven, you know, Whoppers. See, that, that's the fine line that we have, and that's kind of the burden that we have as emotional eaters is to take accountability, but at the same time, don't let it turn into real bad self-loathing where you just want to destroy yourself and self-sabotage by going out and eating a bunch of stuff or stop working out or whatever. Right. And, and one of the things that I actually, I've found a gym that I love. Um, which is amazing for me, and it's the one thing that I have not quit, um, and and that has been really good for me. Um, Next Level Training, shout out to them. They are um, just wonderful. Jonathan there is um, amazing, and he has been one of those people who have just said, you know, you, you come back every day, you get a little bit better every day, and I take that motto into the other parts of my life. I, you know, I wake up every day and I'm going to be a little bit better. And even when things hurt or even when things aren't working out the way they are, you know what, I'm, if, I, if I'm blessed to wake up the next day, then I'm going to be a little bit better. Um, I'm going to figure this out because I owe it not only to myself, but to the universe that provides for us to be a little bit better than I was yesterday. Well, that's that's very profound. Like, like I go to therapy and I'm, I'm naturally a cynic. And so when I go to therapy, I, I'm always like down on myself or if I get rejected, let's say dating or at work or something that happens with one of my exits, it's always like, oh, I'm a horrible person. See, this reinforces the idea I'm a horrible person. And 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 I think a lot of it just goes back to my childhood because rejection was so common in my childhood because of my parents not giving me the love I wanted, plus all the bullying, plus all the girls not giving me the time of day. It's like my my kind of de facto wiring is to hate myself, right? Because mm-hmm. I, unless you learn not to think that way anymore, 
that you're just always going to default to what your, your natural instinct is. And so my therapist will say like, okay, but how does that benefit you to think you're a bad person? You know, how does it benefit you to have negative thoughts? And it doesn't, it doesn't at all, but it's like telling the mind might know that, but it's telling the heart that. Yeah. And getting your heart and your head on the same page are, is so important. Um, you know, your your brain, your your instincts, your mind, your intelligence can be telling you one thing and your heart saying, but hold on or or wait a minute, just maybe it's going to change one more day. Or um, if you grew up Christian like I did, then it was just that if you believe one more day, then yeah. you just need that one more day of faith and then the, everything's going to work out and it's going to come through. And that's just not the way life works all the time. Um, and I think that's some of the things we do to hinder ourselves Um is to really be hard on ourselves. I think I took a class, a self-compassion class. Mm. And that was probably the hardest class I've ever taken um, to be able to just look at yourself and say, if you were talking to your best friend, what would you tell them about that situation? Would you say, oh, you're an idiot. (laughs) You know, you're just stupid or you deserve this or, you know, it's because you messed up. That's not how we would approach our best friends. And so we need to start treating ourselves as if we're our own best friends, even when we don't feel like it. And so some of the things that I have to practice, um, and it is a practice, it's something that you get up and you do and you try over and over again. So it's a, it's a practicing self-compassion, being able to look at myself and say, yeah, this situation happened, it's crappy, you made mistakes, but there's something you can get out of it. And one of my good friends, Shay, would say, ask yourselves the right questions. So questions that don't benefit you are, why is this happening to me? Oh, what did I do to deserve that? That is not going to help you and get you to the next level of anything. So you have to go back and say, this happened, and in this situation, what am I supposed to take forward with Mm -hmm. it in order to be in a better place? Um, And so I have to do that you know, in all aspects of my life. And I know this is kind of getting off of the weight loss, but it's not because it's all tied together. When you're an emotional eater, when you have addiction problems that focus on food, you have to look at every situation and how it relates to that. Or all of a sudden your weight's going to go up, 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 up. Yes. And then all of a sudden you're 30, 40 pounds heavier and you're saying, what the hell just happened? What the hell happened? And what happened is you didn't process that information. No. No. Yeah, that is very insightful, Deborah. Very so, insightful. Yeah, because you're, you're right. You could, like, I remember when my father passed away, I gained like 30 pounds. And at the time, you might not see it or you don't want to see it or you don't want to look in the mirror. And then mm-hmm. the clothes are tightening. You're like, oh, well, the clothes are tightening because, you know, you rationalize. And then, then maybe somebody tells you, it's like, you've gained weight. And yeah, you can just, it just, just walks up on you. And then one day you're like, oh my God, I'm 25 pounds bigger than I was. So doing the constant kind of introspection and, Work definitely helps keep us on our toes, for sure. Yeah, but one of the things, too, and it usually takes about 25 pounds before you realize it. So this, you can kind of sneak away with the first, you know, 10, 15, 20 pounds. You hit that 25, oh, my gosh, I've gained 25 so, pounds. You start noticing the difference. But you don't weigh yourself commonly, like weekly or anything like that. Either I do, either I weigh myself three times a day or else I don't step on the scale for months. So yeah. I kind of go back and forth between those. I have scales sitting in my kitchen. Um, that I haven't stepped on in a while. Well, because right now I know that I've gained weight. So, so I what that. would be the point of getting on them? Yeah, what's, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, you've, I know you've got to, you've got to do something differently um, or else you're going to be right back up to 
um, 398 plus pounds. And that's somewhere that I, I have no intention on going. No, no. I, I know for me, like I used to weigh myself often in my 20s, but I think I've weighed myself once in the last 15 years because I, I have a kind of an OCD personality and I know I can fix it. You can fixate on the number and like be like weighing yourself six times a day. So I kind of just know by clothes, you know, by clothes, um, where I'm at. So I, I probably would recommend most people who have lost weight not to be weighing themselves uh, regularly because you, you can get so caught up in it and it can lead to so much more anxiety, which could in fact trigger the eating. Yeah. Anxiety is um, something that I never knew I had um, or didn't deal with a lot. And it probably in the last two or three years, all of a sudden I'm like, I think that was an anxiety attack. What is going on? Um and it can trigger you to eat um, because, of course, if your food is your addiction or your love, your um, mistress or your mister. Your lover. Yeah, my lover. Lover, lover. <laughs> um, then you, you know, definitely are going to go to that. It's going to make you feel good immediately um, right then. It's going to make you feel like crap later, but right then just putting that gummy bear in your mouth or those 10 gummy bears in your mouth, um, you know, it's going to make you feel that much better right then. And then later you're going to say, why did you do that to yourself? Yeah. Going back to the connection between food and anxiety. I I remember listening to a podcast about Elizabeth Vargas. She was the ABC news anchor for the 530 news for a long time. And Mm -hmm. she had major alcoholism and she hit it during the time. She talks about how there's an intimate link between drinking and anxiety. Mm And because the 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 drinking would relax the anxiety, but in fact, the more you drink, it makes you more anxious. So you're in this cycle. And I think it's very similar with the food. Like if you look back at the times when, or at least when I look back at the times when I binged binged ate, it's because I was anxious, right? You get all anxious. I remember being like at the supermarket and just being angry that there was a, a long line because it was stopping me from going to my car and just woofing down all the food and that would release my anxiety. Then of course the, the self-loathing would kick in or like if, and if you can relate to, to like fast food, if you're in the fast food, the driving and like, Oh, the line's long. I need to get my food now, you know, cause you're so anxious, but you don't realize it or you don't want to realize it. And if you can step in and realize it, Oh, I'm anxious. This is why I want to eat. Then maybe you can stop yourself from doing that big emotional eating kind of purge. Yeah. But Definitely. all right, so last lasting thoughts here. Where well, let's talk about the opposite sex really fast. So you lost 190 pounds. Did you feel were you, were you in a relationship during that time or not? I was. I, I um, had my surgery um, and then reconnected with um, someone that I had met when I was bigger, and um, you know ended up in the relationship with him. Um, and he was very supportive of the weight loss. He's always been very supportive of being the better version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, did you notice aside from him that you were getting more attention from the opposite sex? Or were you not noticing or not looking? Or I don't think I was looking. I really, there's probably a lot of anxiety built in around that, um, of having that type of attention um, from the opposite sex because I traditionally have not made great decisions when it comes to that, um, even back like when we talked about in high school because of the attention that it um, that you would get from those sexual experiences. Um, and so that's something that I really have 
not wanted to even think about. I, I really don't want a lot of attention <laughs> from the, from the opposite. opposite sex. Okay, but <laughs> but I mean, I think we're all wired to crave like intimacy and have a, having a confidant in our life and somebody to share it with. Yes. Yes, definitely. And being very recently in a transition period out of a relationship, um, the thought of starting a new one is not something that's high on my priority list or um, I think it's will be healthy for me to take inventory of myself before I jump into something else. Um, and when, when you are intimate, like when you were intimate with, with your former lover, are you self-conscious about your body? Because like, like for me, even, even now, I've, I've lost it 20, whatever, 25 years ago, I still have a bloopy, like I have loose skin right here at the front of my abdomen and I, that I'm self-conscious about. So like when you were intimate with, with men, were you self-conscious that you were not, you know, did have, didn't have the perfect body or not reading, give it crap. And you're like, this is me. You're going to have sex with me. me. So just be happy. If we gotten this far and you're in the cookies, you know, you knew, you knew what you were getting into. (laughs) So no, (laughs) I like, I like telling women like like, that. Women will be like, I didn't shave my legs today or, you know, my breasts are asymmetrical or they're too small. I'm like, look, guys don't care. All they care at that point is they're going to get laid. Okay, guys don't care if you have fuzz on your legs or that your breasts aren't perfect or you have cellulite. They're just happy. They're, they're, they're like laser focused you know, on sex. Once I got to the point where I was intimate with someone, I really wasn't self-conscious about that unless by chance they would say something. Um, but f- for myself... No, I mean it's like that's great. Once I'm naked, I'm naked. Hey. That's great. I wish I wish I had that kind of kind of view that you have. Even now, I feel self conscious about it. All right. So, any lasting thoughts, parting words before we do the rapid fire get to know you questions? Now I'm ready. Let's go. All right. Let's do it. So first question, what's your favorite color? My favorite color is hot pink. Wow. Sparkles. Yeah, that's like my daughter. Like she's five. Everything is pink, 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 pink. That's right. I'm five too. (laughs) (laughs) Mine's purple. I like, I think it's just a relaxing color. I like that. Okay. So what was your favorite or one or two favorite 80s bands? Favorite 80s bands. So I grew up in a really small town and we had this like only one radio station. And so we probably Chicago. <laughs> You're the meaning Barry in Manilow. my life. <laughs> Chicago is so great. So like Peter Cetera, he had yeah. that really weird voice. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Chicago. Okay. Anyone, you want to name another one? Um, probably the Gap Band or the Barquets, a little, you know, R&B old school. So the, the Gap Band, what was their big hit? Um, Do you remember? No, not no. even the spot like that. I, my shameful pleasure of the 80s was Wham, George Michael's band. I loved that. I just thought they were so awesome. Debbie Gibson, which is another little bubblegum pop girl. I had a crush. I was in her fan club. <laughs> I love that music at the time. Yeah. Okay. So 80s music. We talked off air before we got on about Prince. And my... Deborah, Deborah, I think we both agree he was very innovative. But my, my issue, I'd say, I think he's a little... I wouldn't say overrated. It's just, I don't think his music, aside from the hits, was as approachable as 
Michael Jackson or some of the other artists. And your contention is that his music was just so mind blowing and innovative that maybe we just don't get it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we get it. I don't think we've actually seen the best of Prince. I think that he is genius, and that he didn't share the best of himself even with us as fans. So I think that vault of music that's hidden um, is probably really the true genius of him. Um, When's that coming out? Because he's been dead like two years and that's money that could be made, right? <laughs> well, yeah. They'll, they'll eventually get around to it, I'm sure. But I, I just think that he was genius. I mean, Purple Rain, the movie, of course. That's a great you movie. Know, yeah. I mean, I was, we saw it over and over and over again. Is um, I was 10 when it came out and I have an older brother and I, I remember thinking even when I was 10, it's like, I probably shouldn't be watching this movie. I'm a little too young. But yeah, no. Was it Morris? What was the... Morris the, Day. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were great. He stole the show, actually. Yeah, it was great. It was a Lion Prince, of Apollonia. course, was not a great actor, but you know he's Prince. He didn't have to be. He just had to show up on screen. No, he was great. He was great. Okay, so uh, favorite TV show or most just TV show that you like off the top of your head? Um, TV show that I like off the top of my head right now. I'm watching Power. So tell um, us what's Power about briefly. Oh, Power's about Power um, Ghost, who is a um, drug dealer wanting to turn just professional man and run a nightclub and. Um, he's been in the drug game for a long time and he's been trying to get out and just his life, his wife, um, his affairs. Um, and it's just 50 Cent is great in it. Um, 50 Cent? Yeah. It is just. Uh, is he in the club? Uh, no, he's, he's, he's a drug <laughs> dealer. He's, he's getting his, his business down, get, you know, his business on and groove on. And it's just um, all the power plays in it and the different changes and what people are going through and the shifts and the writing is really good and brilliant. Um, and it's enjoyable. And then they'll leave you with a cliffhanger and make you wait six months till the next episode. Yeah. Yeah. See, I was talking to, I don't know who I was talking to recently about it. Maybe it was Kate, the co-founder of this website, but I don't like the idea of episodes being dropped on streaming all at once. And, and this is something that's different. Like our generation, it was, you had to wait a week mm-hmm. and you got to talk about it, like water cooler stuff. Right? right. Now, like with my students, it's like, oh, Stranger Things came out up season two, all 10 episodes. So the kids watch all of them in one night. And I'm like, why do you do that you're not savoring it's almost like binge eating television right. <laughs> just watch them slowly and then enjoy it because if you what's the what's the benefit of watching all these shows and then you got to wait a whole entire calendar year but i guess everybody's different yeah well power you have to wait uh, at least a few days i mean you have to wait like six days you can watch it a little bit early it used to come on sunday nights but i've already watched my episode this week I've been watching Handmaid's Tale. I got the see. I I'm a firm believer of sharing your streaming credentials with other people. Mm-hmm. So like, I have a friend who do, doesn't have Netflix. I was like, "You have Hulu. Give me your Hulu credentials, and I'll give you my Netflix <laughs> credentials." Because I wanted to watch Handmaid's Tale. That's a bleak show. I don't know if you know much about it. It's like a dystopian future where the women, the few that can still have sex, are essentially sex slaves to the men. Uh, so they can breed out um, the future generations. Yeah, I heard someone talking about it. I haven't watched it yet, but I might. It's very it. dark. So that, that's a good show. A, a lighter show would be Succession. I've been watching that on HBO. That's a, a fun, kind of like um, a show about uh, a Rupert Murdoch kind of CEO and his four kids, and he's about to retire, and so the kids are fighting, kind of like. Kind of like power, like empire. I guess it'd be more like empire, mm-hmm. where the kids are fighting. See who's going to take over. But it's got really funny writing. It's 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 just kind of a fun show. Have you watched um, Grace and Frankie? No. Oh, that's, that's Lily Tomlin. Yes. And yeah, no, I don't. What what channel is that on? It's on 
I watched it on Netflix, I think. Okay, no, I haven't. And it is is absolutely funny. Um, some of the best actors and actresses um, of all time are in there, and um, they do a great job. And it's it's really funny. I'm waiting for them to come back on now. So I remember I Lily. Binge watch. So it's Jane Fonda. No, it's Lily Tomlin and Jane, Jane Fonda. Fonda. Yeah, that's like from nine to five. Yeah, they did nine to great. five it back is, like and a, it is thirty years ago. Absolutely funny. Okay, it's just it's good funny TV. All right. Well, great. Well, Deborah, thank you for ha- being on and uh, sharing your stories and being so intimate. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. And um, I-, I think this is going to help kickstart me. I've talked about a lot of things. So next time you see me, I'll be skinnier. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, guys, that was Deborah, of course. Deborah was great. I just, I love doing the interviews of people who had, uh, who grew up overweight because as, as I as I talked with her after the interview, it's like, it seems like Heather and her had a normal kind of childhood upbringing. Nothing traumatic happened to them uh, that would cause them to turn to food. Unlike my experience where it was my family dynamic, so to speak, that caused that. And so doing interviews like that, helps me juxtapose my experiences with those of other people. So if any of you grew up overweight, which I'm assuming some of you did because you wouldn't be listening to a podcast entitled Confessions of an Obese Child uh, if you didn't, but if any of you want to be interviewed, please let me know. I'd finally, and for those of you who've listened since episode one, you'll be proud of me here. I finally figured out how to record through Skype so I can interview anybody around the world who was overweight. So please just contact me through the website, shoot me an email, and we can get that all set up. So guys, until next time, take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Confessions of an Obese Child. Make sure to visit us at www.naturopathicearth.com for additional confessions, wellness articles, recipes, and a whole lot more. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Naturopath Earth. See you next time.